This morning, I want to give a, a, a message simply entitled this, The Bible on Trial. The Bible on Trial. Dr. Getz has asked me to speak about the, the Word of God, and, I, and from an apologetic standpoint, the idea, can we trust it? I don't know about you. Everything I believe about for faith and godliness is here. So if this isn't trustworthy, I'm in trouble. You've left your homes and your family and your jobs and perhaps even some of your own ambitions and desires to come here to a Bible college. If the Bible isn't trustworthy, we should find something else to do with our life. And I hope after we leave the chapel this morning, we'll leave with this thought. Yeah, knew it all along, just now I know how to defend it. It is trustworthy. And that's our goal this morning. We're going to start in 2 Timothy chapter number 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 16 and 17. A classic verse that deals with bibliology. I tell our guys as they're getting ready for orals uh, that if this is not the, verse, the first verse that comes to your mind, Brother Halk will not pass you. So that's my free advice to all of you this morning. Uh, so all scripture, all of it, all scripture, not part of it, not just the New Testament, not just the Old Testament, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's its source. This is not man's words. These aren't my words. If I came today simply bringing my words, uh, we should just go ahead and leave now and go to Chick-fil-A. I've been keeping an eye out in Victorville. They're building that Cracker Barrel, but it's a, it's, it's a slow process. Uh, we, need to, we, need to get, uh, we need to pray for that. It needs to be on our prayer list so we can have a college activity, Dr. Getz. We need to go to Cracker Barrel and hand out tracts and eat biscuits and gravy. But all Scripture... All of it is given by inspiration of God. That's the source. And it's profitable. All of it is profitable. I tell my Old Testament survey class, that includes Leviticus. It's profitable. That includes all those names in First and Second Chronicles that you want to skip through and just say, everybody begot somebody. I know what you're doing. It's profitable. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, everything I need. That the man of God can be perfect. He can be thoroughly furnished. He can be totally equipped. He can have everything he needs to do the good works God has called him to do. All scripture. And this morning, we're going to ask the Lord to bless our time together. And I want to leave you this morning with some thoughts, some biblical reasons, some historical reasons on why we can trust the word of God. We're going to put it on trial and we'll see what the evidence says. We're not going to base our, our opinions on feelings. Sometimes I uh, have talked to Mormons, and you back them into a corner, and when they get back into a corner, it, here's the common defense. I have this burning in my bosom. I have no idea what they've eaten. I can't help them. One time I, I, a guy was given and said, whoa, 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 before you hide behind that subjective burning, let's consider the objective facts. The Bible is credible. The Book of Mormon is not. We want to have credible reasons why we believe what we believe. So let's ask the Lord to help us with that this morning. Lord, I need your help this morning to be able to give what you put on my heart and uh, to accomplish the goal that Dr. Getch has for our student body. Lord, you've told us and you've called us to be ready always to give an answer of the reason of the hope that's within us. And you've told us that when we give that answer, that we're to have the right spirit when we do so. So I pray you'd help us to have the right answers. And just as importantly, I pray you'd help us to have the right spirit. And I pray as a result of that, the word of God will be sounded forth from this place with great boldness, and you give us revival in these last days. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, apologetics is a field that uh, Brother England will teach you, 
And it's really the idea of defending the faith. It's not just arguing somebody for the sake of arguing. Now, some people are just argumentative by nature. They like to argue. Uh, it doesn't matter what they're arguing for. They'll switch sides just so they don't have to agree with you, just so they can argue. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about being argumentative in our spirit. But we are talking about standing where God has drawn a line and standing there firmly, regardless of what the world says. When God has spoken, for you and I, God said it, that settles it. For the world, God said it, I'll think about it and see if there really is a God, and if there's enough evidence, then maybe I'll believe it, and then that'll settle it. And we want to help them get past that by showing them the Bible, what God has given to us, is trustworthy. We're not looking today at subjective evidence and bringing across people whose lives have been changed. I don't discount that. But every religion has their trophies, so to speak. This person right here was a Muslim, and he learned the truth of Catholicism, and he's our poster boy. That's subjective. I don't want to base my opinions on subjective testimony. So we're going to look at objectively this morning why we believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Put it on trial. Your friends have already put it on trial. Your peers have already put it on trial. Your generation has put it on trial, but they're not hearing the whole story. They haven't had a chance for the Bible to speak. They've listened to the prosecuting attorneys, but they haven't let the Bible speak for itself. And this morning, we want to give the Bible our attention. So let's think about this morning. How do we know we can trust the Bible? I'll say, first of all, let's look at its support. How does the Bible support its claims? And I'll give you a few thoughts underneath it. This morning, not so much preaching as a lot of teaching, but I think you'll find along the way there's some places where we'll find God has something in his word that's just exactly what we need. How do we support the scriptures? How does the scripture support its claim? All right, letter A. The manuscript support. I won't bore you with the different names of manuscripts that we can't pronounce anyway. We won't go there. We're not going to have a test over how many manuscripts there are. But let me say this. If someone tells you that the scriptures are not reliable, the scriptures are not trustworthy, then they also have to disregard all of the other ancient secular writing as well. And I want that to sink in for a moment. So that when you're in your literature class and you're assigned to read Beowulf, just say, I don't, I don't trust this. Use that as your excuse. Or when you're assigned to read the Iliad, uh, I don't believe this is credible. If you're a historian and you want to read Caesar's Gaelic Wars, uh, I don't believe we can trust this. Yet no scientist, no historian ever raises the claim to that. And all these ancient secular writings that have far less evidence to support it than the Bible does, and yet the Bible is what's constantly under fire. Here's what I mean. Homer wrote his Iliad roughly about 900 B.C. That's about the time of David. It's about the time of Solomon. That's the time your Psalms were being written. It's the time the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon being written. It's about that same time frame. That's when Homer writes his Iliad and his Odyssey, 900 B.C. You know when we find the first copies of it? 500 years later. There's a 500-year gap. So what does, that, what does that mean? So what? We'll get to it in just a minute. But I want you to think about something. I want you to have your thinking caps on this morning, all right? A 500-year gap from when it was written to when we have our first copy. Nothing connecting the dots for those 500 years. How do we even know Homer really existed? Maybe he's a myth. But nobody says that. There's a 500-year gap. There's only 650 copies in existence of Homer's Iliad. That's it. It has about a 95% accuracy rate, and so that's a good statistic, but it never helps you overcome that 500-year gap. How does the Bible compare? Let's look just in the New Testament. It's finished roughly around 100 A.D., right? That's about the time frame. John finishes about 95 A.D. About 100 A.D., let's call it completely done. Canon closed, we have our scriptures. When do we find our first copies? Our oldest copies date back to 125 A.D. 
Not a 500-year gap, a 25-year gap. You see the difference? Not a 500-year gap, a 25-year gap. Well, how many copies do we have? Do we, can we find of this? Well, the manuscript evidence just in Greek alone is 5,700, almost 6,000. Not 650, almost 6,000. Almost 6,000 pieces of paper, if you will, that points to the historicity, the reliability of our text. That doesn't count the other languages. That doesn't count Latin and German and Armenian and Slavic and Georgian and all the other ancient languages, the Italic. You count all those manuscripts, that's another 20,000 nearly. Put all that together, 25, 26,000 pieces of evidence that point to our Bible with a 99.5% accuracy rate. So if someone says, I believe this is actually what Homer wrote, we can't trust the Bible. Do you see a bias? Yes or no? Absolutely. The significance of this, let's think about it from this standpoint. For easy math, let's say the resurrection took place in 30 A.D. Some say 29, some say 31. But let's say for math's sake, 30 A.D. Let's say that John finished his last book in 95 A.D. That means these New Testament writers are writing in a period of 65 years. Take John away from the equation. All of the other books are finished by 65 A.D., a 30-year gap. That's it. A 30-year window from the time Jesus resurrected to the last book before John starts writing is written. What that means is all of the people or most of the people that saw Jesus or heard his witnesses or knew some of these apostles or knew some of these people that were healed, many of them are still alive. So if someone's trying to write a falsehood and spread it, there's too many credible witnesses to speak against it. And yet the Bible continued to multiply and multiply, and by 500 A.D., it's in 500 languages. Then you come to the Dark Ages, and the Catholic Church tries to put the chain on it. But before that, 500 languages. What I'm telling you is there's manuscript support for you and I believing that we have exactly what was written 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, etc. Critics are faced with a dilemma, then, aren't they? If they're going to accept Caesar's Gaelic Wars, if they're going to accept Homer's Iliad, if they're going to accept these ancient writings like Beowulf, and so many more, then for the same historical reasons, they have to accept the historicity of this book. Does that make sense? In other words, you can't have your cake and eat it too. (laughs) You can't say, I believe this is Homer, and I believe this is Caesar, and I believe this is this, and this is that. Oh, the Bible. No, no, I can't trust it. If it's subjected to the same test as all the other secular writing, ancient writings are written to, it passes and far supersedes anything that secular writing has ever produced. And I think we should know that. I think that should be in our arsenal when we meet somebody and we knock on their door and say, oh, I don't want to read the Bible, it's just man's word. Well, actually, have you ever thought about the evidence in favor of the Bible? There is no evidence. <laughs> there, there is, actually. There actually is. So we have support. We have, first of all, manuscript support. Secondly, we have archaeological support. When the Smithsonian takes the Book of Mormon and tries to start digging here in America, they come up empty every time. They don't find those ancient lost treasure cities. They don't find those ancient lost tribes of Israel building their cities here. They don't find Nephites and Lehman. They don't find any of that. In fact, the evidence points against what the Book of Mormon says. But every time the shovel, the spade, has gone into the ground in the Holy Land, every single time it has validated what Scripture has said. The archaeological evidence, consider this. Do you know until 1800s, Christians had to live with the ridicule of non-believing people because there was no evidence that there was ever a guy named Belshazzar. No evidence. 
They thought they had the complete listing of all the Babylonian kings, and the Babylonian records said there was a guy named Nabonidus during that time. His name wasn't Belshazzar, and the Bible didn't mention Nabonidus, and so the Bible was wrong. If it's wrong there, it can be wrong everywhere. Christians kept believing because God said that that settles it, but they didn't have an answer. They just waited. Well, around 1800, the shovel went into the ground again, and a piece of pottery was unearthed, and it was from Nabonidus to my eldest son, Belshazzar. Huh. Nabonidus had a son named Belshazzar. Further in the documents uncovered said that Nabonidus was left leaving the kingdom because of some civil unrest. They didn't like the way he was ruling. He was leaving Belshazzar as the co-regent of that kingdom so he could have the title king. This also explains why Daniel was elevated to which position in the kingdom? Third. Nabonidus, Belshazzar, Daniel. Archaeology vindicated what Bible-believing Christians knew all along. Archaeology supports it. I make fun sometimes of Luke, uh, the writer Luke, because Luke, he's just very detail-oriented. I'd much rather read the Gospel of Mark because, man, Mark gets to the point. You know, Luke may be in chapter 8 before he gets to something Mark's already covered in chapter 1. Mark's just flying through, and anon, and immediately, and straightway, and then Jesus did this, and Jesus, and he was baptized, and then he did this, and, blah, 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 and then now, now we're at Jerusalem, now here's the crucifixion, now it's over. Oh, he rose. Go preach. <laughs> That's Mark's Gospel. <laughs> Luke is more like, let me tell you the genealogies. Let me start my first chapter and discourage you with 80-something verses. Let's go to the second chapter and find it just as long. Luke only writes two books, but honestly, you put the pages together, it's 25% of our Bible. It's 25% of the New Testament, even though it's only two books. Paul, he gets to the point. All right, now I'm going to call you out by name and call you out by name. You guys get along and deal with this problem. God bless you. Grace, mercy, and peace. Good. See you next time. Hope to come see you. Not Luke. Luke is, you know, first of all, I talked to these witnesses, and I wanted Theophilus, I, I love you, and then, and it just goes on and on and on and on. And so I give Luke a hard time. Luke names over 100 people by name. Over 100 people by name in the book of Luke and the book of Acts. He names 100 different places. He records in the book of Acts 26 different speeches. Luke invites the skeptic. Luke has left a lot of bread trail, if you will, a lot of breadcrumbs to just say, check me out. I've given you a lot of details. He invites the skeptic. And so there was a man by the name of Sir William Ramsey that took up the challenge. He was a skeptic. He wanted to prove the Bible was not worthy of people's trust. He felt like it was leading people astray. He knew the place to start, the book of Acts. Luke had been careless. He was sure of it. He knew he would be able to find errors in what Luke had written, and he would be able to put it on display to the whole world. End result? He trusted Christ as his Savior, and he became an apologist. Everywhere Luke could be tested, everywhere, time and time again, Ramsey could find no error. Even when there were certain titles used at this, position, this time period of the Roman history and this time period, he used those in just the right moment. Anywhere he could be tested. The names, the places, the countries, the islands, all of it. In other words, archaeology just continued to uncover that the Bible was trustworthy. It's not just archaeology, it's historians, non-Christian historians. Another support line, if you will, Tacitus, first century Roman historian, in his history books, here's what he wrote. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures of a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. 
That's a first century Roman historian, not a Bible reader. That's not taken from somebody who had their morning devotion. That's a, that's a secular historian saying there's these group of Christians. They're already in Rome. We already know about them. They spread from Jerusalem. Their leader was put to death by Pontius Pilate. Suetonius, writing in the second century. He was an emperor, a secretary to one of the emperors. Because the Jews at Rome caused continuous disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he, Claudius, expelled them from the city. That's a Roman historian validating what Luke says, that Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome. This same historian wrote about Nero. After a great fire at Rome, punishments were inflicted on the Christians, this new sect professing a mischievous religious belief. Josephus, Jew and historian who fought for the Roman army as Jerusalem was being destroyed in 70 AD. In his book, Jewish Antiquities, here's what he wrote about James. James, the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ. He wasn't a believer. He wrote this in one of his other books. Uh, I'm taking this from the Arabic translation, which is not as controversial. At this time, there was a wise man named Jesus. His conduct was good. He was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, but those who became his disciples didn't abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion, that he was alive, and he was perhaps the Messiah whom the prophets had recounted wonders. It's a historian validating what scriptures had already said. Pliny, the younger, wrote this. There were in the habit, talking about Christians, of meeting on a certain fixed day, Sunday, before it was light, and they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God. Well, there's a reason they sang a hymn as to a God. Because he was God. They bound themselves by a solemn oath not to do any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their words, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up. Uh, so what was the result? He was asking should he pursue them and put them to death because of these wicked characteristics they had. Jewish archaeologist Nelson Gluck said, it may be stated categorically, no archaeological con- discovery has ever controverted a single biblical reference. You get the picture? You can trust it. It's reliable. Now, sometimes you hear somebody talk and you say, how do you know that person is lying? Well, because his lips are moving, right? There's just some people you don't trust. And there's some people that will tell you something and you just take it with a grain of salt and you say, let me get a, a second or third witness on this. But the Bible, everywhere it's tested, historical, manuscript evidence, archaeological evidence, all of it, the Bible has proven time and time again to be reliable. So we look at, first of all, its support. Let's look at, secondly, it's accuracy. Is the Bible accurate? Is what it says accurate? How do we know if it is or not? Let's put it through some tests. The Bible's on trial. And so let's ask the question, is the Bible historically accurate? Is it historically accurate? Not hysterically accurate. Historically accurate. F.F. F. Bruce wrote, No body of literature in the world has been exposed to the stringent analytical study that the four Gospels have sustained for the past 200 years. Scholars today who treat the Gospels as credible historical documents do so in the full light of this stringent analytical study. In other words, scholars have said, we put it through the test every way we can test it. Every time we test it, it is historically accurate. And some people will come to with an excuse, well, you know, Moses didn't write the first five books. You know how I know? Because writing wasn't invented yet. I've heard people say that. Writing wasn't invented yet. Here's the problem. Hammurabi's code was dated to about 1700 B.C. 
writing existed. In Babylon, there was the Lipit Ishtar Code. You need to know that. That's very important. You, for some reason, I don't know. Lipit Ishtar Code. It dates to 1860 BC. Oh, writing was invented. The laws of Eshnuna. That's a good one. Eshnuna. I don't know what you'll ever do with that word. But still, 1900 BC, it was written. Moses uh, already had writing invented by several hundred years by the time he wrote. You can't hide behind that excuse. There's just evidence that sort of pulls that rug out from these people that are critics. Well, uh, well, the Bible isn't historically accurate. There, there was the Hittites. The Bible talked about the Hittites, and the Hittites never existed. No discovery for the Hittites, <clears throat> except in 1906. And found out they were a vast and prominent civilization just like the Bible described them. Here's what you're finding. The Bible is historically accurate. Well, wait, 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 wait. Jesus never really existed. He's like Santa Claus. It's just a myth. Santa Claus isn't real. <laughs> there was a Saint Nick. There was a Saint Nick. Saint Nicholas was at the Council of Nicaea. He walked over and hit a man in the face who was an Aryan Christian. He denied the deity of Christ. He walked over and punched him in the face. That's the real Saint Nick right there. Okay? <laughs> there is no Santa Claus delivering things in your chimney. So some people want to say that Jesus was like the myth like that. He's like, you know, there's the Easter Bunny, there's Santa Claus, and there's Jesus. It's just this big myth. Here's the problem with that. Within 110 years of the crucifixion, 18 non-Christian sources mentioned more than 100 facts, beliefs, teachings from the life of Christ, including the miracles that he did, including his resurrection, including even his claim to be God. Those are the non-Christian sources. And that's within 110 years of the events taking place. Historically, the Bible is accurate. All right, maybe it's historically accurate, but it's not scientifically accurate. The Bible is not a science book, or we would be using it in our science class. Okay. The Bible is not a science book, but when it speaks about science, it's accurate. Why? Because all truth is God's truth. There's nothing that science... Now, sure, there's times science and Bible, they, they, they clash. Evolution, creation. That's a clash. But is evolution scientific? No. It's not repeatable. It's not observable. It's based on a theory. That's not science. True science never contradicts with the Bible. This is why... A hundred years ago, theology was often referred to as the queen of the sciences. Not now. Now, oh, you're a Bible believer, you're anti-science. We're not anti-science. We're anti-man's humanistic, anti-supernatural bent, but we're not anti-science. The Bible, whenever it speaks about areas of science, is always accurate. David Piles wrote this. When studying the science of the ancient world, one is more apt to be impressed with its ignorance than to admire its accuracy. However, the Bible offers a definite exception to that rule. The scriptures are replete with statements suggesting scientific knowledge which predates the discoveries corresponding to that time. Given the fact that the Bible writers were not scientists, and given that the scientific information at their disposal was generally misleading, the accuracy of the Bible can only be attributed to the inspiration of God. That's a good statement. Where does the Bible made these scientific claims? The shape of the earth is round. It's hanging on nothing. It's not on the back of a turtle, which is on the back of a turtle, which is on the back of another turtle. Finally, somebody says, where does this stop? Give it up, man. It's turtles all the way down. Okay. 
the, the, the earth isn't, it's hung upon nothing. The stars are innumerable. There are pathways in the seas. Even the sanitation laws in the book of Leviticus are ahead of its time. If the people in London had simply followed the Levitical code, the bubonic plague would have been averted. Because the Bible said something about burying their waste, not throwing it out in the middle of the street where the rats ran. The Bible was ahead of its time. The Bible said not to touch dead bodies or cadavers. Finally, somebody put two and two together, a guy by the name of Ignis Simmelweis. Simmelweis. He met a distraught, near-term pregnant woman who was weeping uncontrollably. He went to her and said, what? what's the problem? I've just been assigned to the medical students, not the midwives. That was traumatic because at this time period, the death rate, the mortality rate for mothers giving birth with the medical students was one in six. One out of every six women that the medical students delivered died. He began to try to do some observation, and he came up with a thought. He, he found a connection. The medical students would often handle the cadavers, then come and do internal exams on the mothers. He had a simple solution. He instituted strict hand-washing. Rocket science here, right? And within a month, the death rate was 1 out of 84. How'd the medical field respond? They rejected him, rejected his conclusions, committed him to an insane asylum where he was beaten by the guards and died 14 days later. Some people don't like to be told they're wrong. Maybe Moses was onto something in the Bible when he gave us the Levitical Code. The Bible is scientifically accurate. The Bible is prophetically accurate. How do you know that? Israel's still a nation. Even for, from 70 AD to 1948, being dislodged from their nation, dislodged from their land, having no national identity, and still refusing to be absorbed into all the people groups of the world, I think God had something to say about that. Because he promised them a land. Some of you can say this in your sleep because I drill it into you. A seed and a blessing. That's for the nation of Israel, who is a nation today. And refuses to, to, to give in. You say, but look at all the enemies around them. In 1948, they were ready to wipe Israel from the map. And Israel, with its ragtag band of soldiers and their less than adequate equipment, fought the war on multiple fronts and won. It wasn't because of their great soldier ability. 1967, here come the armies again. And it was a six-day war. It, it was supposed to be defensive. It really wasn't. It was definitely offensive as they began to claim the Golden Heights and, and destroy everything over here in Egypt and, and go this way and that way. Then in 1972, there was a surprise attack. We'll get them when they don't expect it. Yom Kippur, when all the Jewish males have to be in Jerusalem, we'll attack when the borders are undefended. And they did. And yet Israel regrouped and won that war. How did they do that? Because God made a promise. Because God has made a prophecy in the Bible. And, and so we find that prophecy still being fulfilled today. The Bible is prophetically accurate. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He, he was sold for 30 pieces of silver. He was born of a virgin. The Bible does name Cyrus 150 years before he was even born. Peter Stoner was a statistician. He decided to just do some probability equations of what it would be like for somebody to fulfill eight prophecies, just eight, by coincidence. 
out of all of human history to find that one person during that one time who would fill just eight prophecies. His calculations led it to be one in ten to the seventeenth power. That means nothing to me. <laughs> I don't know what number that is. You can count your 17 zeros if you want. I don't know what number that is. I don't have a name for it. I need something a little more concrete to get my mind wrapped around it. So he gave an illustration. He says, suppose we take 10 and the 17th powered silver dollars. I'd like to take that many silver dollars personally. (laughs) And let's spread it throughout all the state of Texas. It'll cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep. We're in the money. (laughs) (laughs) Two feet deep. Okay. Now you're going to mark one of those. Just one. You're going to mark just one. Maybe a red dot or maybe a red line across the back. Maybe you're going to put your name by faith. I don't know. You're going to mark one. And then somebody's going to stir up the whole state of Texas. And they're going to move everything around. And they're going to turn you loose blindfolded. And you can go anywhere you want in the state. It'll be a little slow walk because you're two feet deep in silver dollars. And you're going to find the one. The chances of you finding the one are the same chances that Jesus fulfilled just eight prophecies by coincidence. And Jesus fulfilled more than eight prophecies. So the Bible is prophetically accurate. So we we know the Bible is reliable based on its support, and we know it's accurate. So thirdly, we trust the Bible because of its formation. The Bible, just the way it's formed, leads us to lends itself to its credibility. Think about this book right here. Sometimes we get the idea that the Bible was in heaven... And in 1611, God dropped it down in English. (laughs) And nobody read it before then. But the Bible was actually given here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept, over a period of 1,600 years. To put that in perspective, think back what was happening in the world 1,600 years ago now. Year 417. We're getting ready to go into the dark ages. Uh, People are going into the monasteries and they're they're checking their cell phones at the door. They're taking notes on their tablets, (laughs) maybe a stone one. (laughs) Okay? The world has changed in 1600 years. A lot of scientific discoveries, a a lot of technological discoveries. If you and I were to jump in a time ship and go back to 400 AD, we would be out of place. In like manner, if we could bring someone from there back here, they would be out of place. It would be like John trying to describe what he's seeing on the Isle of Patmos with his limited terminology back here. How do you describe the things you're seeing that's happening in our day when you don't, have the, you don't even have the experience or the observation? You don't even know what you're seeing. You don't even have a word for that, and you're trying to describe it. A lot has happened in 1,600 years. 1,600 years is plenty of time for there to be contradictions in the Bible. And yet there are none. Alleged discrepancies, yes, but nothing that can't be answered. 1,600 years. 16 centuries, you would think maybe the later writers would contradict the earlier writers. Those guys just didn't know what they were talking about. Now we have new knowledge. They were wrong. No, that never happens. Because back here at the early part of the 1600 period, they weren't writing man's words. Because all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Language is involved. Three. English. <laughs> no. What are the three? Hebrew, Greek, 
Aramaic. So you got three different cultures involved here. Those are different cultures. That's plenty of opportunity for contradictions and misunderstandings to slip in. There are none. There's 40 different human writers with different personalities, different learning skills, different literary abilities. Plenty of opportunity there. None. Many of them are writing uh, 50 and 60 years after the event happened. There's, there's the ability for human error. Maybe they just had a memory lapse. None. Because God said he would give the Holy Spirit who would bring all things back to their remembrance. 1,600 years, three languages, 40 different people, one message. This is why Graham Scoggie said, cut the Bible anywhere, it bleeds. It's all about the blood of Christ, redemption. The way it is formed lends credence to its reliability. I'll give you one final thought this morning. It's support, it's accuracy, it's formation. Finally, why do we trust the Bible? Well, the Bible's on trial. Let's listen to its own claims. Its own claims. What does the Bible say over and over again? Thus saith the Lord. 415 times the Bible uses the expression, thus saith the Lord. 46 times it uses the expression, and God said. If you take all the equivalent expressions like that, over 2,000 times God spoke and man wrote. It claims to be the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures given by inspiration of God. 2 Peter 1.21, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Why did you come to Bible college? If you came just because it's fun, you might have learned by now there's work as well. What? He wants me to read the entire Old Testament? Yes. <laughs> and next semester we'll read the New Testament. It's wonderful. How many times does he want me to read Romans? Paul never read it that many times. I'm sure of it. He wants me to read what textbook? Brother Hauk said what? I know that was Halkology. I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. <laughs> Brother England wants me to do what? What? Dr. Getz, ethics? He's messing with my mind. I give up. I have no ethics. No, no, that's the wrong answer. <laughs> Sometimes there's work involved because we're not training people who are going to go out and hand balloons to the world and smile. <laughs> we're training soldiers and laborers. And a soldier has a weapon, a sword. If he can't trust his weapon, he won't be confident in battle. Now, you can walk out of here all day and by the time it's all over and have all kind of confidence in your sword, but can I say this? A sword left in its scabbard won't help you either. Just carrying a sheathed sword isn't going to make the difference. God has chosen to use the sword of the Spirit and he's placed it in our hands. And I hope you'll leave here this morning with the idea that you can trust it. When all the evidence is considered, the manuscript evidence, historical evidence, scientific evidence, the way it's formed, the way it claims to be, when all of that is considered, here's the reasonable verdict. The Bible's trustworthy. It is what it claims to be, the Word of God. And since the Bible is accurate wherever I can test it, then in the areas where I can't test it, as in prophecies that haven't been fulfilled yet, I give the Bible the benefit of the doubt because it's already established itself as trustworthy. 
And I challenge this morning to take that confidence in the Word of God and take that sword of the Spirit and go out and use that sword for the kingdom's sake.